0: Lord, we just sang the old hymn, Rock of Ages. How Jesus Christ is the rock that hides us in you. We find our salvation and our protection in him. And we sang that gloriously true line that you save us from wrath as the double cure. You saved us, Lord, from our sinfulness that needed cleansing. You saved us from wrath. And you make us pure. And Lord, we know that there are many ways that you make us pure. And Lord, many of those ways are connected to our relationship with other Christians who have embraced Jesus Christ and have been relieved of your wrath and are in the process of being made pure. Lord, we thank you that you have given us the church. The Lord, we have an organism that is meant to build us up, to make us strong, to make us righteous, to make us people, Father, who are bright lights for you. We are not meant to do this alone. We are meant to do this together. And I thank you, Father, that you have given us your word which teaches us, instructing us in how we are to live as a church and how we are to selflessly go about serving one another. Guide us as we look at yet another passage on this point, and I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It is astonishing to me how much time and energy and money and ability and patience and affection are given by so many members of our church It is evidence that the Lord is at work in our midst because the simple fact that so many of you would sacrifice so much for the Lord's name suggests that hearts have been ignited by Christ through the gospel, giving us all a wonderful reason to rejoice. As my dad would say, it's like a slice of heaven. And yet, Until the day that we see Jesus, we must not stop encouraging one another and stirring one another up to love and to good works. Because as we know, the day around us is dark and sinister, and we can easily run adrift if we turn our eyes away from the king. So we, church family, need each other all the more. Now, if you were here last week, you heard a message that sought to make a biblical case for the doctrine of church membership, while also showing from Hebrews chapter 10 why such a commitment is so important and so valuable. Now, I won't remake that case for you today, but if you haven't heard it and if you remain uncertain regarding the importance of formally joining a local church i would encourage you and invite you to listen to that sermon on our church website and come and ask questions but today we're going to go a little bit further and we're going to consider what's needed by church members once they actually join a local church because the dangers to us aren't merely external but they're also internal for many churches are no longer churches today because they lost their first love for Christ with the direct result that they lost their love for each other. Now, in Romans 12, we find a church ethical structure that has been built upon a solid foundation. In verses 1 and 2, the Apostle Paul makes an appeal to the church in Rome that's based upon, note verse 1, the mercies of God, which Paul had carefully communicated throughout the first part of this letter. In the first 11 chapters of Romans, Paul showcases the gospel of God for sinners as the Lord graciously saves his precious people through his son Jesus Christ, who died on the cross and paid the sin debt of all who put their faith in him for forgiveness and redemption and salvation. So the first 11 chapters of Paul's letter to the Romans are all about God's mercy. And when the page turns to chapter 12, Paul now begins to apply this big gospel of God by urging the church in Rome to build their lives upon God's mercy, to live in response to it, and to live in the power of the mercy of God. And so based upon God's mercy, Mercy, Paul urges Christians in verses 1 and 2 to present their bodies as a living sacrifice, to not be conformed to this world, and to be transformed by the renewal of their minds. And in verse 3, the structure is still being built upon this solid foundation of God's mercy. Note, Paul begins verse 3 with the word for which is a bridge that connects verses 3 through 8 along with all the rest of Romans to this appeal in verses 1 and 2. Verses 1 and 2 are a springboard for the rest of the book. And Paul even further speaks in verse 3 of the grace which was given to him, referring to the gift of apostleship that the Lord had imparted to him that he might make Christ known among the nations and instruct God's church in how to live. Well, today, we're going to consider an important aspect of church membership that must be included if a local church is to be healthy and strong in difficult days. That a faithful commitment to a local church includes humble service to that church. And when such an attitude of humble service is embraced by the whole congregation, they are then collectively acting as a living sacrifice which is holy and acceptable to God and they are then made stronger and more enduring for the trials that are to come. Now let's consider two necessities for faithful church membership. Necessity number one. Faithful church membership requires right thinking within The body of Christ. Right thinking within the body of Christ. Notice verses 3 through 5. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. We are not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. In verse 3, the ESV translation, the copy that I'm reading from today, it does a fine job of communicating the meaning of a word that could be translated simply as haughty. And speaks of an individual having thoughts about himself that are above the thoughts he should have for himself according to God. This is to have a higher opinion of oneself than is correct or is wise. And it no doubt implies... An attitude of smug superiority towards others in the church because if you see yourself as more important than you should, then you will certainly see others as less important than you should. Just like taking a selfie with an iPhone in cinematic mode, it will put the focus of the picture on you and blur out all of the imagery around you and behind you. So will God and his people be blurred out in your mind when your opinion of yourself becomes too high. Now, I think most of us would agree that it's not good to be prideful or boastful or self-important or arrogant. But I wonder how many of us would admit to actually struggling with that temptation Certainly, we would quickly attest to having observed such attitudes by others, but have we inspected our own hearts well enough to see the inner haughtiness that might abide inside of us? We should take to heart the words of the old Matthew Henry statement that says, Pride is a sin that is bred in the bone of all of us, and we have therefore each of us need to be cautioned and armed against it. If you think this is somebody else think again. Let's look a little more carefully what Paul is getting at here. It seems he wants the members of the Roman church to see themselves correctly as image bearers of God with full value and worth and dignity, but also as a fallen people who have been graced by God with undeserving gifts, the first of which is the gift of salvation. And he begins this challenge to their thinking in verse 3 with an acknowledgement of who he himself was before God. In verse 3, he says, For by the grace given to me. Paul is here referring, as I've mentioned, to the grace of apostleship that was given to him so that he would become Christ's name bearer to the nations. We know this because in chapter 1, verse 5, he wrote, "...we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations." So he speaks of the grace of God's apostolic sending of himself to go to bear the name of Jesus Christ. And near the end of the book, he says something very similar. In chapter 15, verse 15, he says, On some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God. In other words, the reason why Paul had such a ministry, even to the Romans as he wrote them this letter, is because of the grace God had given to him to be the apostle, bringing the gospel message to them. Paul was a man who saw himself first as a great sinner, second as a beneficiary of God's saving mercy, and third, As a recipient of God's sending and empowering grace to be his witness to the lost nations. In other words, he viewed himself first and foremost as an undeserving recipient. Catch that, church family. He saw himself first and foremost as an undeserving recipient. He had not become too big for his own britches because he remembered how small he was before God and how much he had undeservedly received from God. Now, next to Christ, Paul is perhaps the most important person who has ever lived. I don't think that's an exaggeration. And yet, he attributed everything to God's grace. And when the focus is upon God's grace the picture of oneself will always become blurry and less important. This is why he told the Roman church back in chapter 11 of this letter to not become haughty towards the Jewish people who by and large do not embrace Jesus as their Savior and Lord. He said there in verse 20, They, the Jews, were broken off because of their unbelief, but you believers stand fast through faith. Do not become proud but fear. Don't begin to think that you're something special and there's something lesser because you have faith in Christ. Oh, you recognize what you've received as a recipient. Do not become proud, but fear the Lord. And this is why he even more pointedly says in verse 16 of chapter 12, our chapter, he says, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. If you're a person who is a recipient of grace, you are never to be wise, never to be haughty, never to be lifting yourself up if you are in Christ. Instead of haughty thinking, verse 3 tells us that we are to think with sober judgment. Now, what doesn't come out in our English translations is this wonderful little play on words that Paul gives us here in the Greek. He employs in verse 3 several variations of the verb to think, which could be rendered something like, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober thinking. Think, 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 think. And when he refers to such thinking, he doesn't simply mean thoughts in a person's head, but the opinions that are formed in that person's mind. He is urging us away from a false opinion of ourselves which is too high and toward an opinion of ourselves which is correct and wise before God. Sober judgment or sober thinking is to think with prudence, with one's head in the right place. It is to take a proper measure of oneself in light of God and to live according to that measure of oneself. Sober judgment is to look up at the sky on a clear night and say, Behold the stars! What a God who fashioned them! It is not to look up at the sky and say, Wow, I'm amazing. Isn't everyone so lucky that I'm there for them? And this mind, this judgment to be adopted, is according to the measure of faith that God has assigned, he says. Which probably means... That God has sovereignly and graciously given faith to the minds and hearts of his undeserving people so that they are to think with a mindset that's in keeping with such a gift from God. Paul saw himself as a mere recipient of God's mercy and grace, which impacted his attitude and posture toward the church. And for everyone else who is also a recipient of God's kindness, having faith in his son Jesus, they too are to adopt the same posture toward the Lord and toward his people. Because as verse 4 and 5 tells us, each individual member is a part of one church. Paul liked to use the human body as an illustration of the church of God and its relationship to Christ because he used this imagery in multiple places in the New Testament. The human body, of course, has many parts. It has many members to it. It has hands and feet and elbows. It has a nose. It has eyes. It has ears. It has a mouth that speaks. It has legs that walk. And it has arms that are able to reach out. Now, some members of the body, for sure, are more prominent and are more visual, while others are less obvious to behold The parts of the face are seen right away, but the feet get less attention, as do the hands. But to how many people could the mouth actually address if there were no feet for travel? And how many would accept the words of the mouth if there was no loving embrace to accompany it with the arms? Just the same, the church is one body. The spiritual organism that is the church universal, made up of all believers in all places in all days, as well as the church local, made up of committed believers in one place in one time, is one body in Christ. Christ prayed for his body, the church, while he was on earth. John 17, verse 11, Jesus prayed, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. So our unity in the church is connected to the Trinitarian unity of the Godhead. And Christ gave a symbol pointing to his body, the church, through the Lord's table. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 17, There is one bread... We who are made are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. As we're about to go to the table, we're going to remember the body of Jesus Christ that was sacrificed for us. And as we do so, we're going to partake together as one body, as one church. And Christ wants his body, the church, to grow. In Ephesians 4, 15 and 16, It says, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. When each part is working properly, it builds itself up, there is growth in love. And as this spiritual body, we have many members, individuals who collectively make up one unified whole. Now, not all the members of Christ's spiritual body have the same function, but they are all members of one another and vital in their respective roles. Not everyone is front and center. Not everyone speaks. Not everyone gets the same amount of intention. But all have a place. Each member has a role. And all are important. No matter who the person is who has professed faith in Jesus Christ, gone into the baptismal waters to show their identification with Jesus Christ, and joins a local church, no matter who that person is, they have value to that church. And as a unified whole... With each member having significance, there is absolutely no room for a haughty spirit because each part is dependent upon the whole to be able to function. And that's Paul's point, isn't it? Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. Instead, think with right thinking because everything you have is from a God of grace and he has placed you into a body where you are dependent upon other members of that body. In other words, my friends, if you don't think that you can learn something valuable from the elderly member who can barely get to church because of the pain and the exhaustion that comes with age, but does so faithfully each and every week, then, my friends, you are not thinking with sober judgment. If you have little time for the quiet mom who is anonymously but zealously committed to prayer for her church family because you don't see her doing anything but managing children, then once again, you are not Thinking with sober judgment. And if you think that corporate worship will just happen, that songs and sounds and prayers will be a blessing, and the Word of God will go forth to listeners without all of those members who tend to a sound booth and repair the air conditioner and order the supplies and paint the walls and pray throughout the week and tend to nursing babies and invite friends, prepare coffee, and greet visitors, then you are again not thinking with sober judgment. Who will hear, who will believe the word of God, if God's people don't provide the initiative and the love necessary for the gospel to go out. Paul said famously, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. And that's absolutely true. But do you know what else is quite striking? All of those other parts of the body that make that preaching a reality. Faithful church membership Requires right thinking within the body of Christ. So, do you think of yourself more highly than you ought to think? Is your mind absorbed in your own place within the body with less appreciation for the value of others in God's family? My friends, if this sin is in your heart, then demonstrate the life of a Christian repenting by confessing it to God owning it before his people, and turning from it to a new and better way. Because remember, my friends, this whole appeal to you in these verses is based upon the mercies of God. Not only has he brought about your forgiveness through his son Jesus Christ for all of your sins in the past, But even as you walk with Jesus Christ and err in your thinking, err in your attitude, err in your actions, you have one you can turn to who is merciful always to his people. And not just to forgive you when you confess your sins, but to re-enable, strengthen you so that you can go forward with a better mind in the community of God's people. Oh, what a glorious and kind and merciful God that we have. Necessity number two this morning. Faithful church membership requires using gifts for the body of Christ. Using gifts for the body of Christ. Look at verse 6. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Christ Jesus has given a variety of gifts to the members of his church. Now you would think that taking ...on humble flesh, bearing the sufferings of a human life, receiving the ridicule of mankind, feeling the sting of a friend's betrayal, facing the shame of worldly antagonists, bearing the agony of the cross to pay for our sins, experiencing the bitterness of death as our substitute... Rising again for our life in victory and ascending to the Father's side in order to make constant intercession on our behalf would be enough. But now that Jesus has returned to the Father, He does even more, because He gives gifts to the members of His church that they might grow and be strong. Ephesians four seven and eight. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. He gives gifts to people. That's what Jesus does. He makes intercession for us at the Father's side and he brings gifts to us through the Father, through the Spirit. According to verse 6, he graciously gives differing gifts to the various people of his church. Now, not all the gifts are the same, but each one is given so that the people of his church would be able to serve each other well and exemplify the love of God to a lost world. And the New Testament is clear that these gifts are given, not, they are not given for the exclusive benefit of the recipient, but so that they might be used for the benefit of the rest of the body. He doesn't give gifts merely for the benefit of the recipient, but so that those gifts might be a benefit to the whole body. Peter wrote in 1 Peter 4.10, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 7, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Any gifts that you have from God are not meant to be self-enjoyed. They are meant to be gifts that are spread out and given to others. Whatever gifts the Lord gives, He primarily intends that we'll use them within the local church. And in verses 6 through 8, it is implied that we will use these gifts. Now, the ESV translation supplies the words in verse 6, Let us use them. And it supplies those words to us in order to help us, but they're actually not in the Greek New Testament. But because each gift mentioned in these three verses is coupled with how they are to be used in the local church, the implication is clear that each of the gifts is to be employed. They are to be used. And please know that this list of of gifts, it is not exhaustive. For there are other places in the New Testament which give similar but also somewhat different lists. And the point is that God gives wonderful abilities to his people, the people of his church, and he expects them to be used in his church. Unlike the unwise servant who buried the talent given to him in a field, we are to use all that God gives us for his glory in his church. Now let's consider each of these. First of all, he mentions the gift of prophecy. The gift of prophecy refers to the interpreting of God's will, God's purpose within the church. In the New Testament, it sometimes included the prediction of future events, but more often than not, it referred to the revealing of information given by God that would benefit and build up the church. It is probably best expressed today by those who labor prayerfully over the word of God the Bible, and who seek to communicate God's Word to God's people through preaching. For example, pastors, elders, and other men with the gift of proclaiming in the church, they demonstrate this God-given ability even in our congregation today. And Lord willing, we're going to see more men raised up who have the gift of being able to proclaim who will do so in our church body. And those who have this gift, it says, are to do so in proportion to their faith. Meaning that just as they trust in Christ for salvation, so they should trust Christ to use His Word powerfully in the life of His people as they proclaim it. They trust Jesus to save them. They trust Jesus to save others as they proclaim Jesus. Next, he tells us of the gift of service. Now, this gift doesn't remove the responsibility of everyone in the church to serve the church, but it does point to those who have a special-mindedness, I think, when it comes to serving other people in the church. They They are unusually prone to go out of their way to meet people's needs, and they are eager to step up and say, "'How can I help whenever something essential is required?' And I bet you're thinking of some in your mind right now. When I look around this room, I see a lot of people who demonstrate this gift of service, and don't we praise God for them? And those who have this gift should do what verse 7 says. They should demonstrate the gift of service by simply serving. Friends, don't be afraid to be a servant, because that is what Jesus has called us to be. Jesus said in Matthew 20, verse 26, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Oh, friend, don't be afraid to be a servant. To serve people is to be the greatest in the church. The greatest in the church is not the one with the biggest mouth or the most education. The greatest in the church is the one who most effectively serves God's people in love. Don't be afraid to simply be a servant. You might not see a lot of fruit sometimes today but oh, the reward is coming. Third, he mentions the gift of teaching. Similar to the gift of prophecy, some people are unusually gifted to explain the Bible and to relate its doctrines within a church family. These people aren't necessarily those who get up and proclaim to the whole church on a Lord's Day morning, but these might be especially gifted to teach in a one-on-one setting or in a counseling relationship or perhaps in a foundations class. These are people whom God has gifted to explain His Word in various and different ways. And we have quite a few of them in our congregation as well, male and female. And like those who serve, they are to be focused upon the simple, sometimes thankless task of teaching other people the Bible. There aren't very many awards given out for teaching a Sunday school class. And not many people are even going to know if you're effectively counseling a friend But oh, oh, is it worthwhile to be involved in for this service to people is something that has an eternal and and, and lasting significance. Next, he speaks of the gift of exhortation or the gift of encouragement. We saw this word last week in Hebrews 10 when it was translated with the word encouragement. It is to build people up in their faith even if it means having to challenge them in some difficult ways. Some members are uniquely patient and careful and wise, while also being so confident in God's Word that they are unafraid to provide encouraging help when it's needed. Now, we are all called to do this for each other, but there are certainly some who are better at this than others and are a great benefit to the congregation. And just like with service and with teaching, the one who exhorts is to be content in his or her ministry to the body. Then he tells us of the gift of contribution. Once again, every person in the church is expected to give thoughtlessly and or thoughtfully and generously and, at times, sacrificially to the church. But some people have been given more means and more motivation to supply such contributions. Some people are not only uniquely skilled to make money, but they have a generous heart from the Lord to give from what they have for His service and for His mission. They are to give without generos- with generosity, verse 8 says, which simply means without any reservations of how God might use it, which means that they will likely give with a liberality as they trust in God. They're not concerned over how God's going to use it. They trust God to use it, and so they give freely to the Lord. Next, he speaks of the gift of leadership. Not everyone will be an official leader in the church, but some have been tasked by God to shepherd his flock faithfully and it's not an easy task. They will be held accountable for how they lead His church, but the church must have under-shepherds who will constantly, consistently point the church family to the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. Praise God for those who are willing to step up and lead as pastors, who are willing to actually step into people's lives, preach the word, teach the word, counsel the word, minister the word to a church family, that we might all be guided toward the Lord Jesus Christ. And they are to do so, he says, with zeal, meaning that they are to be earnest in their commitment to God's people instead of being uncertain or half-hearted in their efforts. And then finally, he tells us of the gift of mercy. More than likely, this gift refers to those who are uniquely enabled to provide mercy ministries to others. Ministry that helps people in dire need. Ministry that provides education and food and clothing and shelter for those in the church who need assistance. We definitely have some folks like that. We praise God for what happens every Wednesday. We praise God for when individuals come to our church in need. And we praise God for the fact that when there are needs within our church family, we have those who are ready to step up and to help them. And because such a gift could lead a person to become sour or even jaded, often witnessing some pretty hard stuff, these gifted people are to perform this service cheerfully, he says. They are to remember that this is a gift and a privilege from God to be able to serve people, to show them mercy, when perhaps you're one of the only people in their life who's willing to show them any mercy. Faithful church membership requires using gifts for the body of Christ. Riverside, let me ask you, do you see any of these gifts in you? Do these gifts sound like any of you sitting here today? And if so, are you employing the gifts that you have been given? Some will have gifts, and they will hold back because of other excuses that they will give, and they will not take what God has given to them and employ it into the ministry of the local church. Oh, friend, change that perspective. If God has given you a heart of service, if God has given you a mind of mercy, if God has given you ability, please use that ability in the local church. And if you would like to learn how to put your gifts into action, we, the elders of this church, we're going to be very excited to try to help you find a way where your gifts can be employed here at Riverside. Now let's make some logical connections from all of this for those of you who have not yet committed to a local church body. If you are a Christian, then God has given you gifts. And if you have gifts from God, then they are meant to be used for the aid of His church. So, my friends, how can you use them if you refuse to commit to a local church? If God has given you gifts... And those gifts, as we've seen today, are meant to be used for the benefit of the local church. How are you to use those gifts rightly if you refuse to partner and to join a local church? I don't ask that to be rough. I ask that because we need you and you need us. If you're a Christian, you need the church and the church needs you. God has given you gifts that should be employed Come and join a local church that you might use them. And as I said last week, church membership is God's desire for your life. I can't tell you a lot of things that are God's desire for your life. I don't know whether you should marry that girl. I I don't know whether or not you should make that investment. But I can tell you that church membership is God's desire for your life. He wants you to be a partner with a local church. He wants you to make a commitment, a covenant even, with a local church that you would serve them and they would serve you all as you worship Jesus Christ together as a church family. Our Foundations of Membership class is this Wednesday. Five straight weeks on Wednesday nights. I have several already signed up and ready to go. If you would like to be a part of that, to learn more about what membership at Riverside looks like, please come and talk to me at the end of the service. Text me, call me, whichever whichever you would like. I would love to talk with you more about that class and about membership here at Riverside. Part of the task of preaching is to help God's people make course corrections in their lives. And let me close by asking you, do you need to make a course correction with regard to your attitude toward the local church? Let's pray. Oh Lord God, I thank you for the word today. It is a challenging word, Father, because we can all look at our lives and see how we fall short of serving effectively your body. And yet, Lord, we're so thankful that we're able to have a church family to build each other up and to encourage and strengthen each other. And I pray, Father, that you would use your word today to make us stronger in the employment of our gifts for your church. But, Lord, we would not have haughty spirits, but that, Lord, we would humbly seek to use what you have given to us for the benefit of your great name. And, Lord, I pray that if there be those who don't know Jesus today, that they would repent and believe the Savior who died and rose again to pay for their sins, and that they, Lord, would see the importance of identifying with Jesus in baptism and joining a local church, Lord, whom they can partner with and commit to and employ their gifts for the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ. As we turn to the table now, Lord, I pray that you would help us to see this visual demonstration of what Jesus Christ did for his church, how his body was broken, how his blood was shed, so that, Father, we could be forgiven of our sins, have relationship with you, and be one body in Jesus Christ. Help us, I ask, in Jesus' name.